Did you know that the 4th of July is on a Thursday this year? That's going to be a full weekend of fun out on the deck. Four days. But if your deck isn't what it used to be and you aren't using it for great family gatherings, you need to call my friends at All Weather Decks. All Weather Decks is a 24-time winner of the Angie Super Service Award. And they probably help one of your neighbors. Click on the map link at allweatherdecks.net. Call All Weather Decks today at 913-206-1974 or go to allweatherdecks.net and mention you heard it on 810. Call now and relax. Garrettson and Toth presents The Shift with Jack Johnson on ESPN Kansas City, 1510 a.m. and 94.5 FM. Final day of the week here on The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 a.m. ESPN Kansas City. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. Shout out to our presenting sponsors, starting with Garrettson and Toth. They handle the most complex felony federal or state criminal defense cases. You'll find them in doing that successfully, helping criminal defendants all over the Kansas City area and Northeast Kansas for years. Also be sure to visit Kim Howard and Associates Agency at 150th Metcalf in Overland Park or give Kim and her team a call at 913-649-2002. That's 913-649-2002 for a quote on your home and auto insurance today. Royals made a roster move yesterday, and I think everybody will be familiar with the name. Kansas City inked former Yankees closer Aroldis Chapman to a one-year, $3.5 million deal with the opportunity to close here with the Royals. And that's what it came down to when it was all said and done. So this is an article from NJ.com that Aroldis Chapman turned down more money from the Padres, a true World Series contender, to sign with the Royals because the Royals offered him the opportunity to close. He still wants to close. Kansas City has now given him that opportunity. So the 35-year-old coming off a bad year with the Yankees, he wasn't even on the postseason roster. So clearly at that point in the season, Aroldis Chapman wasn't even good enough to hang around as a fifth or even sixth inning type of guy. But of course, everybody is very familiar with the type of track record that Aroldis Chapman had, both on the field and off the field. So last year with New York, Chapman had a 4-4-6 ERA in 43 games. He threw 36 and a third innings. He did strike out, still over 10 guys per nine, but walked nearly seven. I thought his year last year was very comparable to Amir Garrett for the Royals this year or this past year. You know, two hard-throwing lefties couldn't really find the strike zone. But when they were on, they could be pretty much unhittable. So the seven-time All-Star now looking to rebound, to reignite his career in the heart of America with the Royals. Uh, no longer going to have that pressure of pitching under the bright lights of Yankee Stadium. No longer going to have to be pitching under the weight of expectation of closing out for the team with the biggest brand in baseball, one of the biggest brands in sports. Now he can sort of just focus on uh, getting his career back on track. Now, Roldis Chapman... Uh, would be seen by many people, in the eyes of many, that is, as not a very good Samaritan, not a very good human being. Of course, back in 2015, uh, dealing with domestic violence issues, and that has certainly hung over his career ever since that point. He won a World Series with the Cubs in 2016, but there was always talk anytime he signed somewhere for big money or got traded somewhere, if you were rooting for Oldest Chapman, that, hey, 
Uh, he is somebody that has really struggled with being a good person off the field. I think what's very telling about this free agent signing, uh, I think it's good value for a role as Chapman number one. If they would have signed Chapman to a one-year $10 million deal, I would have said that's a, a bit steep there for a 35-year-old guy that's coming off a career-worst year. But at $3.5 million, uh, for who you, for a guy that used to be the best closer in baseball, one of the best flamethrowers we've ever seen in Major League Baseball, I think it's tremendous value. You can always flip him at the deadline, and I think his name alone, if he turns in a good couple of months, will generate a couple of prospects. You will get back some value in return. But a role as Chapman would never be a guy the Royals would go after in the Dayton Moore era. Now, there's a couple different ways you can look at this. Uh, You can look at this in poor taste and say that, well, Dayton Moore wouldn't have signed him because he had problems with domestic violence, right? And that is something that Dayton Moore, of course, takes very seriously. I think he takes a lot of off-field issues very seriously. But remember when we would talk about Dayton Moore on the show or last couple years talking about Dayton Moore, that sometimes he would sign guys that were better people than better players, I guess I would say. That was always the M.O. in Kansas City that – you know, if there was any sort of off-field trouble, whether it ranges from domestic violence to being pulled over speeding four times, you just were not going to find them in a Kansas City Royals uniform. Now, there is something to take very seriously here. I don't think that is necessarily a bad trait. You want to find good people to represent your organization. You really do. It just kind of opened my eyes yesterday. I'm going, man, uh, you just brought in a guy that never would have been considered in Kansas City under Dayton Moore. Not necessarily a good or a bad thing, just pointing out the obvious here. A role this Chapman would have never pitched in Kansas City from 2006 to 2022. That just was never going to be a possible scenario. With J.J. Piccolo, I'm sure that he just looks at a role Chapman as a guy that, you know, aging a little bit, good for the free agent market, $3.5 million. That's cheap. He can be your closer. A big-name guy, or used to be a big-name guy, passed his prime for sure, but need help in that bullpen. From a baseball standpoint, I think it's a good move. You know, you add depth to that bullpen. You didn't really have a solidified closer, whether that be Scott Barlow, Dylan Coleman, Josh Stallmont, Taylor Clark. Now you do have your closer. Does it matter if you have a closer on a bad baseball team? I've certainly brought up that question before. I think it's fun to have a closer and know he's going to be out there in the ninth every single time instead of just closer by committee. Right, who's ever available, who's ever fresh. But if you can build your bullpen to bridge the gap from the 7th, 8th, and ninth, and get it to Chapman, uh, then you can feel a little bit more stability there. I'll be honest, though. I did not think the Royals were going to go out there and get Chapman. When, I, when we talked about him being rumored between Miami and Kansas City, it did not seem likely that he would take the Royals' offer over Miami's offer. He's from Cuba. Miami is basically Cuba 2.0, right? Little Cuba or big Cuba, whatever you want to say, over there in Miami. But Chapman, at the tail end of his career, kind of felt like a situation in which he goes, hey, I want to go back being closer to home. I want to go live it up in a fun city. You know, Miami's like a second home to me. He was working out this offseason in Miami anyway. That, to me, felt like, okay, Miami's going to give him a a one-year $5 million deal. He'll go over there and pitch for the Marlins. Whether he's good or bad, that's just where he wanted to be. But the Royals took it a little bit more seriously. They really wanted Chapman, it looks like. Because you don't just go out and get Chapman and say, well, you're a $3.5 million pitcher. 
you want to go out there and give some incentive as to why he would come to Kansas City. Chapman knows this team is not going to be very good. This team's going to lose anywhere from 80 to 90 games. What he wants to do is still close. And it does beg the question, you know, can Chapman find that old version of himself pitching in an environment that's not that pressuring? I still think he's got the stuff. I think if you could lower that walk rate by 20%, you know, you get it around, I don't know, four walks per nine, he's still going to get up the strikeout numbers. That's just always going to be the case when you throw 100 to 102, and he's got a wipeout slider. But at times when he's a bit sporadic, he's a bit wild, you're going to blow some games. I have no pulse on what a role this Chapman will look like in a Royals uniform. There is a chance that in April and May, he is one of the worst pitchers in that bullpen. Can't throw a strike, knocked around, blows four or five saves, and every time he takes the bump, you're going, hang on to your butts. This guy is going to make everybody sweat it out, whether it's a one-run lead or a four-run lead or a three-run lead, because that would still be a save situation. Or, flip side, in the months of April, May, and June, and July, Aroldis Chapman is one of the top closers in the American League. It's possible. He is 35 years old, but we've seen guys reignite their career before and guys that had less of a prime than Aroldis Chapman did. And I think Aroldis Chapman, it's very telling that you know, he had a career-worst year last year, and his ERA still hung around 4.45, struck out over 10 guys per nine, that was considered a very bad year for Chapman. He was good in 2020. He was really good in 2019. I mean, he was the most dominant closer in baseball at one point. That's in the past. He's not going to get back to that level. But I think the Royals are hoping that he can give you four solid months, flip him at the deadline. I think that is everybody's hope in Kansas City when you go out and get a guy like Aroldis Chapman. Good thing is, too, he's making $3.5 million. If he does suck, it is no penalty whatsoever to DFA him. That is not a lot of money. That is a very cheap, good value deal for the Royals in search of piecing together this bullpen. Now, I've seen the criticism out there of going, you know, why bring in a 35-year-old guy that's coming off a career-worst year? Why go bring in a guy that was left off a postseason roster, battled injuries? Why do that? Well, I can understand that. I can understand wanting to maybe go after bargain bin type of guys, you know, 25 to 30-year-old pitchers, not 35-year-old arms. But a role as Chapman is going to garner some interest. You know, maybe Chapman has a great two months to start the year, and you flip him then. You don't need to wait till the deadline. Maybe a role as Chapman starts throwing really, really well. Maybe Amir Garrett starts throwing really, really well, and you can dump off some guys, get back some value in return. That's, I think, the Royals' hope. But they've been quiet all offseason long. And I mean very, very quiet. This is a move that I think can excite you name-wise because if you would have asked me three years ago, will Aroldis Chapman play for the Royals, I'd tell you hell no. Either that or it would be on a minor league deal when he's 38, 39 years old. It's a major league contract. He's going to be this team's closer. And as long as he stays healthy in spring training, he's going to have that job for the first couple months of the year. That's just the way it goes. And the Royals haven't had a defined closer since, I would say, Ian Kennedy back in 2019. He sort of slipped into that spot. I don't want to say slipped in. Maybe that's too critical. 
Like, he did grab a hold of the closer spot. He was effective in 2019. But other than that, they've kind of gone closer by committee for the last three years or so. It was Trevor Rosenthal. It was Josh Stallman. It was Scott Barlow. You know, they just tried to piece together their bullpen. They didn't really have a solidified 7th, 8th, and ninth inning guy. Now, if you were managing this bullpen, here's how I'd go. I think from the 7th inning, you probably want Dylan Coleman. If Dylan Coleman's unavailable, I'd go with Josh Stallmont. If he's not having his velocity down, about 7 or 8 ticks, maybe i go Taylor Clark. Taylor Clark certainly showed this past year that he may be one of the best strike throwers in that bullpen, and he also can run it up to 98 miles an hour. So Taylor Clark's a damn good arm. You know, you have a couple of options in that bullpen I really like in the final three innings. Amir Garrett, when Amir Garrett was finding the zone, he was virtually unhittable. He really was. Now, he's just not a guy that's going to go full inning. He's more of a lefty specialist. You want to find him for the right matchups. But seventh inning, you got a couple of guys you can go with. Hell, Colin Snyder at the beginning of the year was great for the seventh inning. The fireman then had a very brutal stretch in the middle part of the year. But Snyder's an option. Garrett's an option. Taylor Clark's an option, Stalmont's an option, Coleman's an option, all those guys. Eighth inning, I'm giving that to Scott Barlow. Eighth inning has to be Scott Barlow, but it also needs to be a decision of how you want to get the most value out of Scott Barlow. Scott Barlow is going to get a lot of value if he closes out games. However, if he's bridging the gap perfectly to roll this Chapman, maybe you can get value for a setup guy and a closer there. Because the ninth inning's Chapman. That's why he came to Kansas City. The Royals told him he can close out games. He still wants to close. He's got the ninth inning. Until he proves he can't do that, he's going to have it. Barlow will get the eighth. Coleman, Stamont, Garrett, Clark, those guys are getting the seventh. So really, you know, when you think about it, this bullpen is not going to be disastrous. I think the biggest question mark is, can they be effective in the strike zone? I think last year... The bullpen, when they were just blowing games left and right, walks were a big part of it. Now, this wasn't a team that was going to get knocked around. I mean, eventually, teams started hitting off their bullpen, but we saw the beginning parts of the year. They were the best bullpen in the American League. And then things started to spiral once they couldn't throw strikes anymore. Mir Garrett couldn't throw strikes. Colin Snyder couldn't throw strikes. Barlow couldn't throw strikes. Stalmont couldn't throw strikes. Coleman couldn't throw strikes. Those are problems. Those are big-time problems. But if you can find a way, and I think this new pitching staff, this new philosophy, it's going to help that. Now, Brian Sweeney, Zach Bove coming in, those two guys working with the staff, Matt Quattraro coming over from Tampa Bay, Paul Hoover coming over from Tampa Bay. You've got a good collection of coaches that are really going to hammer the point of you got to throw strikes, but you got to throw effective strikes. You're not going to go in there, just throw it right down the pipe, you got to hit your spots. you got to set guys up. And if this bullpen can do that, I think you are going to see a massive, massive jump because you've got guys with the stuff. We brought up Taylor Clark. Taylor Clark has a great fastball, a firm fastball that sits anywhere from 95 to 97 miles an hour and has a big bender of a curveball, 12-6 curve. Dylan Coleman, who's been working at driveline, can pump it in at 102 with a devastating slider. Biggest problem for him, walks. You limit those walks, you're looking at a guy that may be in the running for one of the top relievers in the American League. I truly believe that. Now, Josh Stallman, we've seen Stallman run it up 102, 103. Same problem as Dylan Coleman, but he's got that fastball and that 
that buckles everybody at the knees. Scott Barlow, don't need to tell you about him. And he's lost in velocity, but that slider, that curveball, they pair perfectly. And then you got to roll this Chapman, who can run it up 100, 102. I mean, you got some flamethrowers in that bullpen, but it's all a matter about consistent strikes. Hell, even Colin Snyder, who we brought up, he had, by advanced analytics here, one of the best sliders in baseball last year and a great sinker. His sinker ran 95 to 97. And we saw last year when he threw strikes, he was one of the best and most trustworthy arms in that bullpen. But you have all these guys that can run it up there. But if you run it up there and you're not accurate, can't throw strikes, it doesn't matter. You're worthless to the bullpen. But if you can pinpoint your location, look at Cleveland, look at Seattle last year, look at the Orioles last year. You throw hard, you hit your spots. That's when you can see a significant jump. And I mean a significant jump jump in your reliever numbers, your reliever stats, your reliever ERA, strikeout rate, walk rate, whip, FIP, all those things. You will see a big-time jump. Aroldis Chapman doesn't change that, but I think you were starting to see the Royals wanting to develop a little bit of identity with bringing some guys back that have great stuff. And you can work with great stuff rather than have a guy that maybe throws strikes but doesn't have the stuff because eventually that gets hit around. Chapman's, I think, just the first of a couple of moves they'll make for this bullpen because they want more trustworthy, experienced guys, it appears. You know, you brought back Taylor Clark, who's 30. Barlow's still there. You know, you got a guy like Amir Garrett. You have Chapman. It's an older bullpen. And a lot of guys they could then potentially flip at the trade deadline. Marco, before we head to break, are you on the positive side of the Royals bringing in a role this Chapman on a one-year, $3.5 million deal? Or are you negative on this going, don't understand it, don't know why you want to bring in a washed-up arm, especially when there's a lot of younger, better arms out there? No, I'm on the positive side of it because you're signing the base, the baseball player, uh, Chapman, and you got him at, I'd say, a bargain value um, considering – um, like you said, t- if you would ask, if we asked you five years ago that, it, or if we would have told you five years ago they'd be signing, you would have said no way. But now, it seems more reasonable. I like it. Um, I consider him a stock right now, and so that's how the Royals need to operate. Each player is a stock, and you're gonna have to base whether or not to keep or trade on on how on how much you value them. And so, hopefully, Chapman can rack up some value and the Royals can deal him off uh, if need be um, if they're not competing of course and depend on how Chapman is but I'm on the positive side of it because new organization new regime um, I approach every decision that this new front office um, and staff is making uh, the same way that I approach the end of Matheny's second to last season in Kansas City why not? Just why not? Um, until they give me a reason to, uh, until they until they give me a reason um, to hate or not like the moves that they make, um, then I'll I'll wait. We'll see how this Chapman thing works out. But as of right now, I don't see him as a guy that gets you to a championship level, gets you a ring by any means. Uh, he is simply a guy that you're just hoping um, can get you a good deal uh, later on in the season. Um, or like I said, or like you mentioned, have a tremendous upside and and Chiefs Royals uh, kind of struck, struck a little gold there. Yeah. It does feel like the Royals got Chapman at tremendous value. I think the, the most important thing to point out here, 
he had a better offer. The San Diego Padres offered him more money. But they told him, you can't close games for us. And I wouldn't blame the Padres for that. The Padres got an elite bullpen. They don't need Chapman closing out games. And he said, okay, screw it. I don't want to go there. I still want to close out games. The Royals said, hey, here's more money than what the Marlins offered you, which apparently was $2 million. And they said, you can close games for us. And he said, done deal. I'm coming to Kansas City. So Roldis Chapman, now a member of the Kansas City Royals as their new closer. One year, $3.75 million deal for the towering lefty from Cuba. We'll take our first break of the show. When we come back, let's preview some college basketball games on Saturday. Kansas back in action against TCU at home. And K-State look to build out on their win against Kansas. They'll be up against Texas Tech, who is still winless in conference play. That's next on The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN, Kansas City. Back here on The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN, Kansas City. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. The Big 12, another full slate of games on Saturday, beginning with number two Kansas at 16-2 at home against the 14-4 and 14th-ranked TCU Horn Frogs. That'll tip off on CBS. Let's start it off there because it is the first game. K-State and Texas Tech will follow that at 1 p.m. on ESPN2. But the Jayhawks coming off their first loss in conference play to Kansas State in Manhattan. Uh, Two losses this year for Kansas are not bad losses. Tennessee is a top 15 team nationally. K-State's going to be in the top 10, assuming they beat Texas Tech on Saturday. So you've not lost to bad teams. But it's so important if you plan on winning the Big 12 that you don't turn one poor performance, and I wouldn't even say it was that poor performance, a lesser performance into a multiple-game stretch of bad play. You know, it's good for Kansas that they don't have a, a gimme next. They don't have a layoff type of game. You're right back in the fire. And though TCU lost to West Virginia on Wednesday night, it's still a damn good TCU team. I mean, TCU obliterated Kansas State. Yeah, it was 14 points, but for the majority of that game, that was around 20 to 25 points. I mean, they were just smoking Kansas State. So you know the talent that that roster does have. Mike Miles is one of the best pure guards in the country. Not only the Big 12, but the country. Eddie Lampkin is going to be a serious problem for Kansas in the post. He is one of the strongest, most physical big men in the conference. That's tough tough to go up against. He's not a hulking, seven-foot He's not 6'11". He's a big dude, though. I mean, Eddie Lampkin leads them in rebounds. He is just a, a big press. Now, actually, I think he's about 6'10". He's not over 7 foot. I think he's about 6'10", 265. So KJ Adams is going to have his hands full. And he has given Kansas problems a lot before. Last year, he gave Kansas problems both in Fort Worth and uh, in Allen Fieldhouse. And I believe these teams met again in the Big 12 tournament. Yeah, I, I think they did. And he was a problem once again. He was always giving Kansas fits. I think you have a a guy like K.J. Adams that can go with him toe-to-toe physically. I mean, K.J. Adams is only about 6'7", maybe 6'8", on a good day. 
6'8 with some pads in his shoes. But he's a strong dude. Big shoulders. Can hang with a guy like Eddie Lampkin. But if Eddie Lampkin has the type of game he had against Kansas State where he is just a freak, I mean a beast on the glass, finishing around the rim, getting to the free throw line, that's going to be a major problem for Kansas. You think defensively they should have an answer, and maybe an answer to an extent on Mike Miles Jr. He's always going to get his. He's going to get his 15 to 20 points. He's averaging right now 19.1 points per game. But you'll have DeWan Harris to go up against him. You'll have Kevin McCuller. Maybe you switch things. Well, Because when Kansas played Kansas State, I at least thought that they had the favorable matchups because you had DeWan Harris that could go on Marquise Noel. Noel was held to four points. You had Kevin McCuller and Jalen Wilson that could go on Keontae Johnson, but Keontae Johnson had 24 points in the game. And then K-State got 24 points from Desi Sills. They got a double-double from Naquan Tomlin. So there were still some holes there defensively that Kansas couldn't correct. Now, per Bill Selby, said they had a good week of practice. They've been working on things that fell apart at the end of the game against Kansas State. I'd expected to come out and have a very good performance against TCU, but I'm curious as to how that performance will be defined as good. What will they do well in this game? How will they bounce back? They just flat-out play well, flat-out shoot well. You know, Grady Dick shoots 60-65% from deep. Kevin McCuller doesn't have a goose egg. Jalen Wilson puts 20 to 25 points in a double-double. You know, K.J. Adams scores in double figures. Dewan Harris gives you 10 or 11 assists, takes care of the basketball. Is that what it's going to be? You know, type of performance like you had against West Virginia, the only blowout win Kansas has had in Big 12 play? Or is there going to be a different identity to this team on Saturday? Bill Self did point this out in his press earlier this week, that they have concerns with the bench play. They're not getting enough there. Last year, that was a big problem too, especially at this point in the season. You know, Remy Martin wasn't playing at that level yet. Mitch Lightfoot was not giving you much. You know, Joseph Yesfu wasn't giving you much. They could only go about maybe one, two guys deep off the bench, and even when they were in the game, they weren't giving you the type of production that you need to be a national title contender. But once they got to the tournament, that's when a switch was flipped. You got some valuable defensive minutes from K.J. Adams. You got great scoring production from Remy Martin. Mitch Lightfoot could be a great post presence. That's when you make that jump. Right now, I'm struggling to see where that guy is going to emerge off the bench. Right now, the first guy off the bench is usually Bobby Pettiford. The first big man off the bench, depending on the game, is either Zuby Ejiofor or Zach Clements. Joseph Yesvu gets in the game. He was all right against Kansas State. Ernest Uday got his wisdom teeth out last week, so that's why he wasn't available or available in, in a significant amount of minutes against Kansas State. So you have nine guys right there. Cam Martin still ba- battling injuries. MJ Rice has been battling injuries all season long. You have two five-stars on your bench. You have a four-star in Zuby Ejiofor. You know, Joseph Yesu was great at Drake before he came over. Bobby Pettiford is a guard that's a work in progress. You have guys you can go to, but I do not think that trust is there yet. This Kansas team is 16-2 and solely on their starting five. Their starting five has done everything. And when you get into those tough, grinded-out games, when you're going into overtime, those guys can wear down. 
I mean, Jalen Wilson played 35 minutes against Kansas State, had 38 points. You want to be able to give rest to guys in, in a stretch of four to five minutes so they can be fresh at the end of the game. But right now, I do not think there's any trust with the bench players. And they had to close out that game against Kansas State with Zach Clements on the floor, with Bobby Pettiford on the floor, and Joseph Yesfu on the floor. And you had K.J. Adams, Grady Dick, and Kevin McCuller all fouled out. Two of your best defenders fouled out. That's a problem. And Kansas needs a guy that's great defensively off the bench. They had that in K.J. Adams last year. They had that in Mitch Lightfoot last year. That's how you get on the floor for Kansas. It doesn't matter if you can score 10 to 12 points a game. If you're not good defensively, self's not going to put you in. I think we've seen that from time to time to time. If you cannot play defense, you're not getting on the floor. I thought it was a very telling thing in Bill Self's rotation a couple years back. I covered Kansas uh, for 24-7 sports, fog.net, in my writing days, and I covered Kansas during the COVID year. And one of the glaring problems of that team was they were bad defensively. They were really bad defensively. And two guys that stuck out to me, and Bill Self from time to time would make it a point in the press conference. He wouldn't name drop them. You could just tell who he was referring to. Christian Brown wasn't that great defensively, and Jalen Wilson wasn't that good defensively. You know what happened? Those two guys became two of the best defenders on the team in the national championship year. They stayed on the floor. The team got better because when they could defend, when you saw them make that jump, that's when Bill Self would start noticing. That's when he'd keep them on the floor. He would speak to the media, and he'd talk about who made the biggest jump. I'll never forget that offseason after the COVID year. Bill Self said that Christian Brown was the most improved player on the team. And everybody's going, really? Christian Brown, of everybody out there, he's made the biggest jump. And it was very easy to tell early on. He was great offensively, super athletic, tough physically on the defensive end. And he was one of the main reasons Kansas won a national championship. Jalen Wilson was praised for getting better defensively. Great rebounder, a slasher. Kansas needs that guy to emerge. Also going into this year, Bill Self talked a lot about K.J. Adams. And everybody's going, really, K.J. Adams? The guy who averaged one point a game last year? It was great defensively, but there's no way he can hang in the Big 12 offensively. Well, he's basically averaging 15 points a game in Big 12 play. He can hang around, and Bill Self notices those things. So when you see Bill Self mention a guy, or you see him giving more minutes, it's not because they're thriving offensively in practice. It's probably because they've been great defensively in practice. And you need to see guys like MJ Rice, Ernest Ude, Zuby Ejafor, Zach Clemens, Joseph Yesfu, Bobby Pettiford, all those guys. Of, of all the names I just mentioned, six guys or so, five or six guys, two of them need to show they can be trusted. And that's when this team makes the jump from Sweet 16 Elite 8 to Final Four to National Championship. I am very curious to see what the type of play Kansas has on Saturday is. I'm expecting it to be good, but as I mentioned, what type of good is it? Is it same old, same old with the starting five? You know, Jalen Wilson gets his, Grady Dick gets his, KJ Adams gets his. Or will you get something from the bench? Because once this team gives you about, you know, 10 points off the bench, majority of the bench guys playing have a plus minus that's north of two. Then you're going to see this team really start to come into shape. The February Jayhawks, as we call them, when they're playing their best ball, that's how they become well-rounded. 
that play off the bench. Freshmen getting more comfortable. There's three freshmen right now that have the talent to play. It's all about that trust. So Kansas and TCU tipping off at noon on CBS this Saturday. Kansas 16-2, second in the country. TCU 14-4, 14th in the country. Kansas State, who now is atop the Big 12, tied with Kansas and Iowa State at 5-1 in conference play. They will be back at home again against Texas Tech. Tip-off will be at 1 p.m. on ESPN2. It's just been a team that has exploded onto the scene with how they can put the ball through the hoop. Keontae Johnson is a guy that was more than talented enough to play the best schools in the country. He could play at Houston. He could play at Kansas. He could play at UConn. He could play at Kentucky. And I know Kentucky's not top five anymore, but you know what I mean, the Blue Bloods. could play at Carolina. could play at UCLA. All those teams he could easily play at. And he's at Kansas State. And he right now is by far and away, I think, in the running for Big 12 Player of the Year. I think he is. He has been the main reason to me as to why K-State's made this jump. Marquise Noel has been phenomenal, but Marquise Noel was there last year with Nigel Pack, and Nigel Pack was a phenomenal player. But Keontae Johnson has elevated them to a different level. And that's why he has been the one that hasn't had the off game. I don't remember a time in which Keontae Johnson just had a bad performance. You could say TCU, you know, he had seven turnovers in the game. He also put up 18 points and nine boards, nearly a double-double. If that's bad, uh, that is the Big 12 Player of the Year for me. I mean, going back to December 7th, here's his scoring totals. 12, 18, 23, 16, 18, 28, 24, 12, 18, and 24. He's ridiculous, man. He's averaging over 33 minutes a game. He's great at rebounding, scores around the rim, can shoot it from deep, gets to the free throw line. He is the difference maker, and he is why Kansas State's going to be a very tough out in March. Now, here is a great thing to watch in this matchup. Texas Tech has just been disastrous this year. They are 10-8. and eight. They have lost all six of their conference games. They haven't won since two days after Christmas. So they're about to go all of January without any win. But the thing that Texas Tech does possess is a defensive identity. They are incredibly physical. They want you to play in those low-scoring games, very similar to Oklahoma State. I just think they have more scores than Oklahoma State. Now, in this matchup, what I'd love to see here is you got Keontae Johnson and you got Kevin O'Banner. So Kevin O'Banner is more of a stretch four. I think Keontae Johnson's a three-slash-four. I am interested to see if Mark Adams of Texas Tech will put Kevin O'Banner on Keontae Johnson. I don't think he's quick enough to hang with Keontae Johnson, but when Keontae Johnson is down in the post, that's who you'd want on him. Or he'd want Bacho of Texas Tech. They're a young team. They've been banged up. You know, Pop Isaacs has been good. We saw how good Pop Isaacs was against Kansas State. Or Kansas, excuse me. You also have Davion Harmon. They've got guys that can put the ball in the hoop. I mean, I think all five of their starters are averaging in double figures. Or close to it. they got six guys that are all averaging over nine points a game. It's just gone wrong for Texas Tech. Now, they have had a tough start to conference play. They had to play on the road at TCU. You played Kansas. You played Iowa State on the road. You played Texas on the road. And you played Baylor. They've played three straight teams that were in the top 25. Five of their six losses in conference play are against ranked teams. 
Kansas, Iowa State, Texas, Baylor, and now you get Kansas State. It doesn't get any easier. I mean, Tech is by far and away on the outside looking in the Big 12 to get in to the NCAA tournament. That loss to Oklahoma is maybe the one that stings the most. Oklahoma's not bad. They'll be middle of the pack in conference play, but I thought Tech would be the top half of the Big 12. I'll admit when I'm wrong, I have a hard time seeing that now. They're 0-6. They'll need to win 10 of their next 11, it feels like, to really even be in consideration of the top half of the Big 12. But what could change their season is beating Kansas State. Now, if you're a Kansas State fan, I wouldn't be worried. I mean, your team is really just on fire right now. I think they're not overlooking anybody. They're certainly not going to overlook Texas Tech because they know how good they've been in the past. They're well-coached with Mark Adams. You always can bring this up, though. When you have an emotional type of win in the way you did against Kansas, how do you come down from that? Go back down to earth, be in reality. That game was on Tuesday. This is Saturday. It's still the Big 12. Anybody can get you. There's no team that's a cakewalk. It doesn't matter if it's OSU, it doesn't matter if it's Oklahoma, it doesn't matter if it's West Virginia, and it certainly doesn't matter if it's Texas Tech. We saw Oklahoma State hang with the Kansas State Wildcats. At the very end, though, they just didn't, they couldn't score enough. You know, West Virginia, they were beating Kansas State early on, but when it got to overtime, they didn't have the offensive firepower and they couldn't get enough stops on the defensive end. They didn't have an answer for Keontae Johnson or Marquise Noel. That's what lesser teams in the Big 12 are running the problems with with Kansas State. They can't keep up with them offensively. They don't have an answer for Keontae Johnson. But I do like Kansas State to win again on Saturday. I just think with the way Texas Tech's been playing, you can use the underdog mentality, but they're so young and so banged up right now. They're going to need an extraordinary type of performance in front of a sold-out environment in Manhattan to take down this red-hot Kansas State team. That'll tip off again at 1 p.m., on ESPN2. We'll take our final break of the show. When we come back, we'll wrap it up with our three heroes of the game. Which three guys will lead the Chiefs to victory against the Jacksonville Jaguars? And of course, we'll end the week with some fact or fiction. That's next on The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN, Kansas City. Back here on The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. Let's wrap up the show real quickly with our three heroes to the game and some fact or fiction. So to start it off, our three heroes. Number one on my list, I'm going to go Travis Kelsey. The Jacksonville Jaguars are 32nd in the NFL in DVOA and defending the tight end position. He was great last time out against Jacksonville. If I'm not mistaken, that was the last time Travis Kelsey had a touchdown. So it's been a long time since Kelsey has scored, but also Jacksonville just doesn't have an answer. It hasn't changed the last time these two teams have played. They are not good at defending the tight end position. I'd expect the Chiefs to heavily attack that Jags secondary, that Jags linebacking core with the likes of number 87. Expect a big, big game from Travis Kelsey tomorrow afternoon. Number two on my three heroes list, I'm going to go Chris Jones. Chris Jones still does not have a postseason sack. He's turned in a career season. He should be, in my eyes at least, defensive player of the year. Aaron Donald's not going to get it this year. I think the next best defensive tackle in Chris Jones should be getting it. He has been a monster up front. He's been wreaking havoc all season long. I expect that to remain consistent tomorrow afternoon. I do think he gets his first sack in the postseason. 
even if it weren't to happen, he's getting it this year. No, I think I've already made my prediction. I think the Chiefs move on against Jacksonville. So if he doesn't get it this week, he's going to have a couple the next week. I mean, Chris Jones, there's nobody that can block Chris Jones right now. He has been that damn good all season long. He's turning the career year, and you're hoping if you're Kansas City, you can just find a way to continue to keep him around, I think, for the rest of his career because he has shown no signs of aggression whatsoever. He is my second hero to this game. And lastly, I wanted to pick somebody from the receiving core, and I am going to do that. You had Travis Kelsey for tight end. You had Chris Jones up front on the defensive side. But do I want to go with Judy? Do I want to go with MVS? Do I want to go with Kadarius Toney? I think I'm going to take a odd shot here, and I'm going to go with Justin Watson. I don't know why. I just feel like Justin Watson is going to have a big catch or two in this game. You know in postseason games. Last year we saw Byron Pringle go off in the wild card round against the Pittsburgh Steelers. So we've seen Andy Reid get very creative in the postseason, and I think we're all expecting the ball to go to Kelsey, Juju, MVS, Kadarius Toney. I think Justin Watson may have a big catch or two, maybe one of them leading to a score. So those are my three heroes of the game. Those three guys, I think, will have the biggest impact in the Chiefs beating the Jags tomorrow afternoon. Kickoff will be at 3.30 on NBC. I got Kelsey, I got Chris Jones, and I got Justin Watson and a little bit of my surprise pick. All right, it's time for some fact or fiction. Five questions, five takes, in under five minutes. Marco Firewood. Factor Fiction, Oraldis Chapman has more than nine saves for the Royals. Nine saves last year for the Yankees. He was banged up and also got sent home at the end of the season. I do think fact here, the Royals are not going to be in many tight games, I don't think, this year. They're not going to have 60 or 70 tight games. Maybe they do because that's about half the season. I think that'd be fun. You never want to see any blowouts in baseball. It's a waste of your money when you go out to the K and it's 10-1 to by the fifth inning. But a role this Chapman getting the nod that he would be the closer, that's what give, makes me think that he is going to have more than you know 20 save opportunities before he would be traded away at the deadline or maybe even earlier. And I think he could convert at least half of those. He's still a very good closer and very good pitcher at that because of his pure stuff. So I think, fact, he surpasses his save total from last season. Fact or fiction, KU gets at least 10 bench points against TCU. I'm going to go fiction on this. I'm not there yet with the bench. I don't know if they could get, you know, four to six points from Bobby Pettiford and Joseph Yesfu, then a couple more points from Clements or, you know, Ernest Uday off the bench or if MJ Rice even plays in the game. TCU is a damn good team still, even after the loss to West Virginia. I just don't see tomorrow being the game that the bench breaks out. I'll go fiction on that as well. Factor fiction, Keontae Johnson will not have less than 10 points in a single game in conference play. I'm going to go fact on this. He could have a bad game, but we saw against TCU, he played poorly and had 18. I mean, he just takes a lot of shots, and a lot of those shots go in. He gets the free throw line a lot. That's going to result in a lot of points. So I'm going to go fiction on that. I don't, or fact on that, excuse me. Keontae Johnson is not going to have a game in conference play in which he has less than 10 points. Factor fiction, Jarek McKinnon, Travis Kelsey, and Isaiah Pacheco will score on Saturday. Those feel like the best bets to me. You know, Jarek McKinnon's scored and feels like every single game this season, especially after the bye week. Travis Kelsey, I just said, is going to have a big impact in this game. And Isaiah Pacheco is going to get a, the ball inside the five-yard line. I think, fact, I think if the Chiefs are going to have 35 to 40 points in this game, and for that reason, I also think that those three guys would be the most likely candidates to score those touchdowns. Fact or fiction, two road teams will win in the divisional round. I think in my predictions, I had Cincinnati beating Buffalo, 
And then uh, I'm going to go fiction on that because I don't see Dallas winning in San Fran. I do not see the Giants winning in Philly, and I don't see the Jags winning in Kansas City. So I'll go fiction. Only one road team will win, and that road team will be the Cincinnati Bengals. There is Ray Charles, so it's time to go. That wraps up another edition of The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I've been your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. You enjoy the weekend. We'll talk to you on Monday, Kansas City.